Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why does making friends as an adult feel so what hard? What should I wear on a first date? What the date? hell is a foreign But that Why hookup was not first good. So what do I want my life to look like in five years? We, we want to know too. Since 2012, the Every Girl has been an online destination to help women around the world achieve the life of their dreams. Now, we're excited to bring you the same inspiring content with the Every Girl Podcast. I am in I'm such a Christmas I, yeah, happy November. It literally is going to be 80 degrees by noon today in LA. But no. this morning when I took my dog out, it was a crisp 59 degrees. And I was like, it's Christmas. This is what I always wonder about you is like how you survive in the heat. Because I think of you as such a fall and winter lover. Like you love fall, you love your sweaters and you love Christmas. And you're in LA. I'm a mystery. I am a mystery. I just like to keep people on their toes. This is a controversial take, but justice for the Thanksgiving girls. I know there are very few of us out there, but we're out there. Okay, so is Thanksgiving your favorite holiday? It is. I love it. Why? I love the food, which I know is controversial. I'm aware that that's a hot take. And I just really love the tradition of it. It's just the togetherness. And sharing a good meal. So Emma, that's beautiful. That's so family oriented of you. Being a vegetarian, it is not my like prime food holiday. Um, So fair. But I don't hate Thanksgiving. It's just an extension of Christmas. It's just like a mini Christmas before big Christmas. You know, no matter how you feel about the holiday season, as long as you're excited about one of them, that's what matters. Okay, let's get into the Ask the Every Girl of the Week. What have you picked for us today? So today's Ask the Every Girl is, how do you practice gratitude? I'd love to get some inspiration from your gratitude routines. Very seasonal. There's so much science behind why gratitude is so important. Like there's one study, I don't remember the exact factors of it, but it said that when you experience gratitude, you cannot also feel anxiety. So in moments of anxiety, it's really helpful to feel gratitude because the brain can not both. So there's so much research behind why gratitude is important. So I think this is such an important question to ask and an important effort for us all to be practicing gratitude. For me, though, maybe just like the word of it or when I say like I'm grateful for, it doesn't connect with me. Like I just, I can't feel it. I can think it. And I really am. I'm so grateful for my life. I'm grateful for what I get to do for work. I'm grateful for my boyfriend. And I feel grateful. But when I'm doing some kind of journaling or whatever, it just doesn't connect with me. Maybe it's because it reminds me from when you're in second grade and your teacher's making you write out, I'm grateful for my family on your turkey and like posting it to the wall. So it just feels like a homework assignment, not like my body's feeling it. So something that has worked for me is instead I think of I am so in love with my life because it's like that feeling of being in love. And I think about when I was first falling in love with my boyfriend and it's like that feeling where you like you're supposed to wake up in the morning. I don't mean it to be sweet. I'm not trying to be cute. I'm trying to be like helpful (laughs) advice. But everyone knows when you first are really excited about someone and and that falling in love feeling where you are excited to get out of bed, you have this zest for life, you're excited about life. I try to apply that feeling. To me, that's what gratitude actually feels like in my body. So the saying is more of I'm so in love with my life. I'm so in love with my work. I'm so in love with getting to do this podcast like that saying clicks for me better than gratitude. Another thing I do, this is going to be so niche. And oh, gosh. But have you seen, Emma, that movie about time? It's one of Rachel McAdams' many time-traveling movies. I have not. Why has Rachel McAdams done like 10,000 time-traveling movies? I don't know. <laughs> She's done multiple. 
She might have only just done two. So, okay, well, sorry, spoiler alert, because this is going to be the end of the movie. I have a point here. In About Time, one of Rachel McAdams' time-traveling movies, her husband in the movie time travels, naturally, and it's like a genetic thing in the family. So he spends the whole movie trying to go back in time to correct things. Like, if he gets fired from his job, he tries to go back to correct it. But then he finds out that if he goes back too far, then it's like his daughter wasn't born. The lesson in the movie, the end of it, that I think about literally on a daily basis. I don't know why this movie is like really taken a hold of my life. But at the end of the movie, the dad, who has also been a time traveler, tells him what I have found to be the point of doing it is not to go back in time and try to erase things. It's to go back in time every single day. So at the end of the day, he goes back and relives that day every single day for the purpose of solely enjoying it. So it shows him like going through. And the first time he's living it, he's like, I'm rushing to work and it's raining and I'm miserable and I'm late. And then he goes to Rachel McAdams and their daughter and he's rushed and thinking about all the work he has to do. And then he goes and relives that day for the purpose of enjoying it. So you see him going through the same thing, noticing The couple on the subway that are sharing a sweet moment, you see him dancing in the rain. You see him getting home so excited to see his daughter. So then you get to see him going through the day as if the point of it is just to enjoy it. So I think about if I could come back and relive this day and get to experience this just for the sake of enjoying it, how would I view it differently? How would I react differently? And that has been my biggest help in my gratitude practice because I don't have to think about, okay, what am I grateful for? I'm viewing through the lens of, oh my God, look at all I have to be grateful for without having to think about it, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. I love that. Experiencing gratitude more in the moment and for the moment that you're living in rather than lists of things that you have or people you have. Yeah. This has helped me instead of being like, okay, I'm just going to go through the list of the things I know I should be grateful for. or I already know I am grateful for. Instead of being like, I'm grateful for my boyfriend. It's helped me be like, as he's washing the dishes at night, I'm like, oh my God, I am going to look back on this time when it's just him and I and Louie in our apartment and he's washing dishes and like, be so grateful for this moment. And so that's a different shift to me that like I feel in my body because the point of feeling gratitude is you've got to feel it almost like that feeling of awe where you're like, oh my God, I can't believe it. I'm so lucky. So that's my answer. What about you, Emma? Do you have a gratitude routine? I definitely have moments where I practice it more. I feel like whenever I am around people I love, I will stop for a second and take it all in and be like, wow, this is so amazing. I'm so lucky that I'm with these people. It's that pause, I guess, of mindfulness and taking in the moment. Because it is that being around other people that causes you to really stop. I think that so much gratitude is grounded in our interactions with others. I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a routine. But then I do... Because we've talked about before on the podcast, you and I are both big manifestation journalers. Whenever I journal, it does tend to be very like forward facing, like thinking about the future. At the end of every journaling session, I will make a little quick list. I know I just said maybe not. Oh, we just said maybe not a list. But I do feel like it's essential if you are thinking about your future, like recognizing how far you've come is an essential part of that. And so incorporating it into basically every journaling session I have is super important to me. I'm glad you brought up that point too, especially with how much we talk about manifestation and your best self and ways to make your life better. You can't get to that amazing place, that better place, if you don't also simultaneously acknowledge and appreciate what you already have and how far you've come already manifestation is not manifestation without gratitude. Like it's a key Mm -hmm. piece of it because you have to be in the state of like, oh my God, look how far I have come. Look how much I do have. Like you have to feel in the state of abundance rather than just thinking about what I don't have right now, but I want in the future. And I also love that you have that practice in the moment when I'm with people I love, realizing this is a special moment. And it makes me think of, Like, you know, all those times, like you can probably think of all the best memories of your life. For example, I have a memory from 
going out with all my best friends and it was like the most fun night. Looking back on that night, I wasn't thinking in the moment, this is going to be one of those memories I always remember. I wasn't thinking that. I was probably like, I was having so much fun and like laughing, but then I was always like, oh, I have a paper due tomorrow or oh, I got to get home soon because I'm tired. So it's like when we're in the moments, we're going to remember. We don't know that they are those moments. For example, I think of a lot is when I'm on vacation, I realized that I was looking forward to vacations for so long. Like I'd be so excited for vacation. And then during it, I kind of am like, oh, yeah, I'm loving it, but I'm a little out of my routine. So I feel a little weird and I'm worried about getting sick and I got to catch the flight home and I kind of am homesick. You're like, we're never actually fully realizing. Yeah, that's so true. The moment that we're going to remember. Then when we leave the trip, we're thinking about it for so long and being like, that was the best trip ever. We're not actually in the moment thinking I'm experiencing one of these moments I'm going to remember. So I think that's a really good tip is when you're in the moments, you're going to remember to realize it. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like a riddle. No, I think that's actually such a good practice. It is so true. Like I remember even being in like fifth grade and the first snow of the year and being so excited and like, oh looking God. at the snow and being like, I'm just so grateful for how beautiful the world looks right now. And it's that sort of stillness that helps you practice gratitude more. It's also a powerful practice to like look back on those moments in your childhood because you were not actively thinking, oh, it's snowing outside. Okay, let me make my gratitude list for the day. No, like, no, yeah. And again, like I, I think being intentional, having routines is so important, but we have to remember the purpose of them. Maybe it's just training ourselves to live in a state where we do not have to reflect on, here's the things I'm grateful for. And it actually is the mindset where, like you experience as a child, where you are just viewing the snow and being like, oh my God. Yes. Yes. This is more of a lens you see the world than it is a list you're writing in a journal. Okay, let's dive into the episode today because this is a great episode. This if is I do say so such a good episode. Such like, a good episode. Dr. Robin brought it. Okay. Yeah. So today's guest is Dr. Robin Burson, the founder and CEO of Parsley Health, which is America's leading holistic medical practice designed to help women overcome chronic conditions. Since founding Parsley in 2016, Dr. Burson has seen 80% of patients improve or resolve their chronic conditions within their first year of care which I know is so crazy because so many people live their lives with chronic conditions without any solution in sight. So this just proves the life-changing value of making modern holistic medicine accessible to everyone everywhere. Dr. Robin is also the author of Prescription for Happiness, How to Eat, Move, and Supplement for Peak Mental Health. The conversation we get into today covers so much. We talk about why the majority of women are dealing with some kind of symptom or chronic condition how preventative healthcare is better for your body and also better for your wallet. We talk about epigenetics versus genetics, how people in the blue zones are living to age 100. Dr. Robin also shares some amazing health tips for you to feel better right now so that it's not just about preventative care. It's about feeling your most energetic, amazing, best self now, including a workout routine that she calls a prescription. She gives hacks to support your immune system and the healthiest types of alcohol for when you want to drink, which is especially helpful getting into the holidays and this time of year. I know I will be using these tips myself. So everyone, get your notes app ready because you're going to want to be saving these tips to remember later. Please welcome Dr. Robin Burson to the Every Girl Podcast. Dr. Robin, welcome to the Every Girl Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. Why start Parsley Health? What gap did you see in healthcare that you wanted to fill? When I was in my training as a doctor, I went to Columbia Medical School and I trained at a hospital here in New York called Mount Sinai for residency. And I just kept noticing something that really bothered me. I saw that most people today are suffering from chronic conditions, things like GI conditions, depression, and fertility heart health, blood sugar, autoimmune. And they're the kinds of conditions that last for years and get worse and worse. And most of them could be modified or even totally reversed. But what I saw was that we had this revolving door between primary care and specialists that was spinning faster and faster while these kinds of patients just got sicker and sicker and on more and more pills and ending up in the hospital. And it just struck me it didn't have to be that way, that if we took a different approach to medicine, 
a lot of these patients could be much healthier and could get out of the cycle. And so I just started Parsley Health to build a medical service that would do that just It's so needed. The amount of people that I have heard in the personal experience that I have of you not feeling heard by their doctor, not feeling like they're really figuring out what's wrong. When I've been on my health journey of trying to figure out with my bad periods and it was like, go see this specialist. And then it was like, try this prescription. And it was never, let's look under the hood and figure out what's actually going on there. I actually joined Parsley Health a a few years ago when I moved to LA and it changed my world to be like, whoa, for an hour and a half, I'm sitting with a doctor who's asking me every single thing about my history. So I want to talk to you about root causes, because that's something that has often been ignored in our healthcare system when so many doctors just give prescriptions to numb a symptom without looking under the hood and asking why that symptom is there to begin with. As a patient of Parsley Health and a fan of yours, I know that you talk a lot about health biographies. Can you explain what this is and why looking for the root cause of any symptom or condition is so important? Thank you for being a Parsley member, and we're honored to have you. This health biography just simply means this. The story of your health is the story of your life. And too often in medicine today, doctors or any type of provider meets you. It's like whack-a-mole, right? They try to just treat the thing that's right in front of them. And we know that we have to actually go back into your story, which starts with your family history and your genetics, which are a big component of your health. It starts with how you were born. You could have been born C-section or vaginally. That could actually have set you up for certain types of conditions. It goes back to your childhood and your teenage years and all the years up until today that you're sitting in now. Maybe the bloating and GI symptoms you have now actually started four or five years ago when you took a lot of antibiotics for a bunch of sinus infections. And we need to know that because that is called your health biography. What happened to you before has determined where you are today. But in medicine today, we sort of act like the diseases we have, especially these chronic conditions, like you talked about irregular periods and PMS and hormonal problems, we treat them like somebody walked out of the sky and this issue hit them on the head. But that's not how it works. We live our way into these conditions. And many of them, not all, many of them, we can live our way right back out or at least partially out and feel better. And so In that, we brought in the aperture to look at what you're eating, how you're moving, your relationships, how you manage stress. Do you have meaning and purpose in your life? Are you always chained to your phone? Are you sleeping? All of these things are impacting your health. And then we do more robust diagnostic testing, and I can talk more about that. But we do all of that to connect the dots across your story and your life and your body so that we can identify the root cause. Because our goal is to help our patients live healthier, live longer, optimize their health, not just manage their chronic diseases and conditions and symptoms, but actually get better. Why do you think that a lot of doctors, I don't want to generalize, but a lot of doctors do not think to look under the hood. They're not looking at the root cause. As a doctor myself, so maybe I'm biased, but I don't think it's our doctor's fault. It's not how they're trained, right? I trained at amazing places. Going to medical school at Columbia was such a gift and a foundation and a privilege, and I'm so unbelievably lucky. Training at a top hospital system like Mount Sinai. I delivered all three of my babies at Mount Sinai Hospital with Mount Sinai doctors. But the reality of our medical training system is really, I think, related to the financials, candidly, behind how we pay for healthcare. And healthcare has become very transactional, right? We don't pay for primary care very much. Primary care is not reimbursed the same way doing a a cardiac surgery where we rip veins out of your leg and tie them around your heart once your arteries are clogged is reimbursed. We pay a lot in this country for care at the end, end of life or when conditions have gotten really bad. And we don't pay for care to be proactive, preventive, and more effective. And I think that's a mistake and a really big mistake financially when we live in a world where 90% of our $4 trillion that we spend on healthcare a year, we spend $4 trillion a year in the United States on healthcare. It's 18% of GDP. This is the biggest expense we've got. And our bodies, these are the only vehicles we're going to have for life. But we wait till the wheels fall off the wagon And I believe that we're reimbursing the wrong things. When 90% of our $4 trillion goes to chronic conditions, we have to move our healthcare upstream 
to be more proactive as an intervention around chronic conditions and helping people get healthier. I was just with the president of a huge health insurance company, one we've all heard of. And I asked this gentleman, what's the number one thing that would make your job easier, make your health plan, your health insurance company more successful? What would make it all work better? I'm just curious. And he said, healthier patients, because that impacts them. And then because it's impacting them, our premiums go up and we have this cycle. And I said, then why are we not reimbursing keeping people healthy as opposed to treating them once they're really sick? That's really a powerful concept. So many people are so reluctant to put money into health. You know, they think organic vegetables are too expensive, so they'll buy cheaper food. When in reality, they're going to spend a lot more money trying to treat symptoms, trying to treat disease in the long run without seeing the preventative and how important it's like an investment. How do you encourage almost like our culture of how we view healthcare to shift to start investing in prevention rather than waiting for that huge cost when it comes to treatment? It's such a great question. And it really is a mindset shift. And I want to remind all of us listening, it's not our fault, right? We've all sort of been trained to view going to the doctor, other than when you're a kid and you get your well visits and your vaccines and so forth. Once you become a grown up, you only go to the doctor when something's wrong. And oftentimes people are actually living with things being very wrong. We just published a report on the state of women in the workforce. Women in the workforce today are living with constant fatigue and hormonal symptoms and GI symptoms and anxiety and depression and other symptoms that we've told people are normal and they should just live with. And that is not true. How you feel is a message from your body. It is information. And today we don't pay too much attention to our body. Sometimes our body has to be screaming at us for us to start to do something about it. And if your body's screaming, usually something really bad is going on. So I think we need a global and collective mindset shift. We have been educated to think about our health one way. But what I think is really exciting and awesome is that look at you. Look at you having this amazing podcast. Look at how many people, especially over the past five to 10 years, have gotten really stoked about and engaged about their health. And I think that comes down to one simple thing is that we want to feel good. I think it's really hard to motivate to say, well, let me prevent something that may or may not happen 20 years from now. That's a tough thing to get out of bed for when I've got so many things on my plate just day to day in my normal life. But when you think about feeling good, not having brain fog, having energy, not feeling shaky and dizzy, depressed, anxious, not having period symptoms or bloating or constipation or joint pain or rashes. All of the things that are indicators that our body saying, hey, hello, something's going on with me. When we tap into that and wanting to feel better, I think that is where we begin with the shift to start to engage in our health. This body is the only vehicle you'll have for life. So how we treat it is up to us and we have the potential to feel really good right now. Yes, it's like no longer feeling okay with just feeling okay. Making the most of our health rather than just thinking, We need to focus on our health when something's really wrong. No, we should be focusing our health not only just to prevent things, but so that we feel the optimal energy, so that we feel inspired and excited and vibrant and alive. I'm so glad that you brought up women especially because I feel like women especially are told so often to just deal with it. You know, I've shared my story so much about for literally 10 years being told, oh, sorry, you just have bad periods. Here's a prescription painkiller. And then I had to do my own research to find out that cramps are my body's way of communicating with me. I feel like a lot of women are rushed through appointments. They're dismissed. They're not taken seriously. I've heard women who were told they were being dramatic by their healthcare provider. What are some common symptoms or conditions that you think are commonly ignored for women that you would encourage our female listeners to really look into and talk to their doctor about? Yes, your experience, unfortunately, is all too common. And we just published a study of 1,200 women in the workforce, um, all ages, 18 to 65. And what we found was pretty astounding. First of all, they're sick. A third of them have some sort of chronic condition or health issue going on and label themselves as not feeling well. So that doesn't even count the people who have a chronic condition. 67% of them say that they don't have a clear diagnosis for why they aren't well, meaning they've gone to doctors, but they don't really feel like they understand 
what's going on, what they have, what the real reasons are. And even worse than that, 80% of them are delaying care, meaning they're not going to the doctor or to getting help when they do feel sick. Number one reason actually being time, not having time to go. Another reason being cost. Another reason being, and this is their words, they said that they often feel dismissed when they go to the doctor or they feel like they're going to just be told to take another pill, which at this point, they don't want that to be the only solution. And so it's so important to hear from women because women are the decision makers. They drive 80% of healthcare spending in America. They are the CEOs of health for our families, our communities, ourselves. Women in the workforce are often taking care of at least one, if not two generations, meaning parents or kids. And they also are the spenders. They are driving the economics of our healthcare system, which makes it really ironic that the healthcare system is not listening to or catering to its core customer. Like when you think about that in any other consumer business, right? Like smartphones or food or hotels, people are obsessed with designing around their customer. But in healthcare, women are the core customer, but women are the ones falling through the cracks. And so I think it's astounding. And so you asked, what are some of the symptoms? What we see every day at Parsley Health, and we've seen tens of thousands of patients, the majority of them, about three quarters of them women. We see women living with bloating and constipation and reflux and diarrhea that are not normal. If your gut is a mess, you can't be healthy because good health starts in the gut. We see women with fatigue and body pain, joint pain, brain fog insomnia, anxiety, depression, all of those things often women get told are in their heads. And oftentimes everything I just mentioned is actually the sign that you have an underlying condition, a blood sugar issue, a thyroid issue, an autoimmune condition that you may not know about yet or that you know about, but you haven't connected those symptoms. Another set of symptoms that we see a lot is you talked about your experience, right? And I'd love to hear more, your periods. And your period for menstruating women and is a is another vital sign. <laughs> so if it's off, it's telling us something about how your body's functioning. And if your hormones are off, usually something else is off too, because your hormones are talking to your whole body, not just your ovaries or your uterus. I'm sure everybody listening is like, yep, I have about 10 of those. But it's also interesting how when we receive a diagnosis, We feel like we have it taken care of because we have a name for it. So we have insomnia, so we treat it with a pill, whereas that's just the beginning. You know, why do we have that? A diagnosis is just a group of symptoms. So why do we have insomnia? Why do we have bad periods? Where is that coming from? It's not the end because we get a diagnosis. It's just the beginning in order to solve where the problem is coming from. Like a diagnosis is not the end goal. It's just the beginning. Absolutely. And I think, you know, so much of our healthcare is kind of like I said earlier, whack-a-mole, like we're just triaging, like what's the latest thing? Here's a pill that's going to help your migraine pain. Well, why do you have migraines? Because if we don't figure that out, we're just going to add the first pill and the second pill and then a specialist and a headache center and a Botox. And now all of a sudden we've spent like $10,000. And today out of pocket, our health insurance, unfortunately, doesn't cover everything. And a lot of us have high deductible plans where we have to spend a bunch. And so you mentioned earlier prevention, but I think another reason people are starting to really lean in here is that this is hitting our wallets right now. It is expensive to be sick and it is expensive to do what you're saying. Get a diagnosis, add another pill, add another prescription, add another procedure and not figure out the why. And listen, we can't always figure out the why. I want to be really clear. There are conditions and diagnoses, you know, forms of cancer, right? There, there isn't something that we could have done to prevent that. But no matter what you have right now, there are absolutely ways that we can help you feel better or help you feel more empowered and supported in managing that condition. If you're managing bipolar depression or you're managing cancer or you're managing diabetes or you're managing autoimmune disease, even if we can't cure that disease, we can help you feel better and we can send you on a trajectory where that disease won't be always getting worse and worse, but we could even stabilize that condition. It takes time. It takes really engaging in your health and it takes redesigning the way we're delivering our medical services to do all of those things. I'm also a health coach in addition to a podcast host. And in my practice, I have heard a lot of people feel like these 
terrifying illnesses or chronic symptoms are out of their control. That's the number one thing that I hear is like health is a scary thing that we have no say over whether or not things happen to us. So for people who are unfamiliar, can you explain epigenetics and that side of healthcare that says we can prevent disease or symptoms or our lifestyle impacts how our body feels? Genetics is such an interesting topic. And what we learn in medical school is that everything is G plus E, genes plus environment. But it's almost never, with a very few exceptions, and there are exceptions, there are some diseases like cystic fibrosis, for example, and others where the genetics are the thing, right? There's not an environmental trigger. That said, most things are G plus E, genetics versus environment. And we're, we're also taught to say is that genetics load the gun and environment pulls the trigger, which I don't like any metaphors involving firearms. So I don't love that one, but that is literally <laughs> what we're taught in medical school. So what does that mean? It means that our genes are interacting with our environment all the time. And we say, what's our environment mean, right? Is that just the air or the weather? No. What I mean by the environment is it, it's our foods. Food is information for ourselves. And when we eat foods filled with dyes and refined sugar and carcinogens, which are cancer-causing chemicals and endocrine disruptors, which are hormone-disrupting chemicals, we give ourselves information. Those foods get absorbed through our gut when we eat them. And they go into our bloodstream through our liver and they talk to all our cells. And we want to eat foods that give ourselves information to stay healthy. But a lot of us are eating foods that are telling our cells to get sick. In addition to that, we have other environmental factors like stress. When you are chronically stressed out, you actually speed up the enzyme that converts testosterone to estrogen. So why is stress driving our PMS? Why is stress driving our low libido? Why is stress driving our abdominal weight gain? Why is stress driving our insomnia and acne? Because stress is actually speeding up the process of an enzyme that's breaking down our testosterone into estrogens in our bodies, which happens in both men and women, actually. We have stress, we have foods, we have obviously pollution and chemicals in our personal care products and as women. We use 12 products on average before we leave the house every day between makeup and skincare and shampoo and toothpaste. And so all of those things can be contributors, more information for ourselves. And our genes are inside ourselves and our genes are being turned on and off in real time. So that's what epigenetics is. Epigenetics is essentially you've got all these genes, right? But most of your genes at any given moment are kind of in sleep mode. They're quiet. They're not actively encoding proteins. They're not actively driving what's happening in your body. What's cool about your genes is you can turn that off and on. And various factors in your environment, like all the ones I just described, are turning your genes on and off in real time. What's really cool is that we know a lot more about our genetic code. What I like to think about with my patients when it comes to this is, yes, we can do some genetic testing and we can look at do you have copies of APOE4, which increase your risk of early Alzheimer's disease, for example? Or do you have BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes, which increase your risk of breast cancer? We do those types of genetic tests at Parsley. But what was even more hopeful, because we're not quite at the point technologically where we're going to like edit all your genes, although I bet that's coming, is that we can actually turn off bad genes and, and turn on good genes in real time through eating the right foods, managing stress cleaning up your personal care products, being in nature, getting rid of the pollution and the flame retardants and being mindful about the chemicals that you're exposed to, taking certain supplements. And all of those things can, in a combined way, be that positive message to ourselves and our genes to head our health into the right direction. Some people will say, I don't, I don't know about all that. I'm still going to get sick. So why bother with any of that? And the thing is, you're right. We can't prevent everything. We can't. We, we don't have a crystal ball. But I see over and over again, people who are sick and living with chronic illness that wish they could go back because for these people, their healthcare is their second full-time job. And while we can't be perfect and we can't prevent everything, we can prevent a lot. Which I think is so empowering. I used to have such a long history of very bad health anxiety where I've had panic attack disorder over specifically health because for so many years I felt like, oh my God, all these scary things can just happen to you. And when I started to learn about nutrition and went to nutrition school and like learned about how much these environmental factors matter, I felt mm -hmm. empowered. Like how cool mm -hmm. that 
yeah, we can't prevent everything, but I get to have some control. I get to determine how I feel every day. I get to put an effort that will help me prevent so many things that might otherwise be my destiny had I not stepped in and changed so many patterns for me. So I see it as something that's very empowering. But I know a lot of people hear all of the toxins, all the environmental factors, and they think panic, like I'm overwhelmed, I'm stressed. If you could give three changes, three quick changes someone could do today, what are those most important, like biggest bang for your buck changes to make if someone wants to start working on that preventative health? Number one is food. Food isn't like medicine. It is medicine. And if you eat the standard American diet, you will get the standard American diseases. When we eat whole foods, meaning non-processed, not in a bar or bag or something you can pop open or wrapped in cellophane, but vegetables, fruits, whole grains, like you can see the grain, meaning it's not pulverized into a flour in a cookie cake or pasta. High quality, meaning where you can, doesn't have to be perfect, but where you can, sources of grass-fed meat and seafood, nuts and seeds, legumes. When you eat those foods, which guess what, y'all? It does require cooking, but I'll tell you, cooking so much cheaper. And learning how to do some basic meal prep, when you eat that way and you remove the refined carbs and refined sugars and processed foods, and it doesn't mean you can't eat out ever. It doesn't mean you can't get takeout ever. Listen, I love to eat out in restaurants. I get takeout sometimes, but I'm really clear with what I order from those places. And you eat that way like 80, 90% of the time your body will transform, your mental health will transform. And it's not just about feeling good 20 years from now. I'm telling you, you're going to feel good right when you make those changes. So that one is really, when I think about the bang for our buck, it's that. The second one is that we have a wonder drug. It is the world's most powerful wonder drug. It is exceptionally well-researched and evidence-based. There are no exceptions to whom it benefits. Every single human alive benefits. And yet we have forgotten about it in medicine, and that's exercise. The body is meant to be stressed physically, meaning have to lift heavy things, have to sweat, have your heart rate go up. And all of those things that we just mentioned as we sit our way to an early grave are not happening for people on a daily basis. I'll be super honest. This one is really hard for me because as a mom of three kids running a company, I got off a plane last night at 11 p.m. in New York. Like there's always something. But that has been shown when it comes to longevity, cognitive function, mental health, weight, blood sugar, energy, digestive health, immune function, literally every single system in your body responds to exercise. And so I think it's just beyond exciting that you have this wonder drug that's free, and it's one I just encourage everyone to use. Oh, that's so powerful to call it a wonder drug because it does reframe it from this is something you have to do and you're supposed to exercise to like, whoa, like we get access to something that's free, that's easy, that makes us feel good, that we can find fun ways to do it, whether it's going for a walk, dancing, whatever it is. Is there a certain amount of time people should aim for, certain types of exercise that are better than others? Like, what is your prescription when it comes to exercise? Yeah. By the way, I loved how you just framed that because I always have felt like, especially in my early years, like my teenagers and 20s, I felt like exercise was a should, right? I felt like it was about being skinny, getting fit, looking hot, fitting into a certain size clothes, right? Because we all experience those pressures. The exercise I'm talking about has nothing to do with looking hot or getting fit or fitting into a size, whatever. I don't care about any of that. This is just about feeling good and making your body work for you and having energy and good sleep and good digestion and good immunity and good brain function. So this is a prescription for exercise that assumes that you have no time, that you hate the gym. <laughs> those, are, those, those two things are me. And that you need to get a lot of bang for your buck. What we recommend is 20 minutes twice a week of each of the following. One, some rate training or resistance training. You've got to do something that builds your lean muscle mass and builds bones, especially for women. And you don't have to be at the gym for hours. You can do at-home weights. You can do gym weights and you can do them for 20 minutes, like three sets. And I always recommend if you do belong to a gym, go get one of those trainers they have there. Sometimes they'll show you like a free session write everything down that they tell you to do and I'll just go do it for 20 minutes twice a week. It's my hack. Or 
again, there's a lot online showing you. I actually have resistance bands and medicine balls, which are those weighted basketballs at home, because again, I just don't really like the gym. Resistance training is critical for cognitive function, for longevity, for metabolism, lean muscle mass. You'll get such a metabolic boost, actually your highest metabolic boost, meaning how many calories your body burns at rest comes from weight training, not cardio, which is a big misunderstanding. For those of us who like me grew up in the 80s and 90s, we all got sized into oblivion and like that's just not how it works. And then 20 minutes twice a week of some sort of cardio, what I want to see is your heart rate going up and you sweating. So it could be running. It could be the elliptical, which is my cardio of choice because I like low impact. It could be biking. It could be doing jumping jacks. It could be high intensity interval training, but get that heart rate up. It's detoxifying. The, the cardiovascular exercise is actually ex- shown to expand your lifespan. So how long you live. And then the last one, 20 minutes, twice a week. So this is six days total. And the seventh day is your day of rest, whatever that day that is for you. Could be Friday, could be Sunday, could be Monday, whatever you want. But the, the other two days, I want you to do something that stretches you out and calms your nervous system. I think that we've forgotten about that when it comes to exercise. That could be yoga, that could be Tai Chi, that could be just a really nice 20-minute stretching session. But stretching is actually really important for an organ system in the body we forget about, which is our fascia. The fascia is like the connective tissue that connects our muscles and our bones and that lines our bodies. And when it gets tight, like little old ladies and little old men shrunken over, it's because their fascia is shrink-wrapped yoga or yin yoga, which is a kind of floor yoga or some of these other practices, we actually stimulate our fascia and we produce something called hyaluronic acid that's lubrication for all of our joints. So if we want to stay limber, if we want to stay open, if we want to stay tall, doing those types of exercises that stimulate the fascia, I'm a big yoga nerd, but Pilates is another one. I recognize that not everybody loves these things, but figure out what's right for you. I think people do, like you said, have this idea of fitness that it's we do cardiovascular health and muscle. And I think that's the idea of fitness is that you're like really pushing your body. You're really challenging your body, but there's not the balance to it. There's not the how are you supporting your fascia? How are you helping your muscles recover? Rest is a part of fitness. So I love that you have the well-rounded definition of fitness rather than I think the idea that most people have. I know you also brought up lifespan and longevity. And I've been wanting to ask you about this because a huge topic right now is chronological aging versus biological aging. I think especially with the Blue Zones show on Netflix, if you've seen that, I am such a huge fan of the Blue Zones and all that work. So I think that longevity is becoming a way bigger conversation, which is very exciting. Can you explain the difference between chronological aging versus biological aging? Yes, I love this topic. We've focused a lot on lengthening the the end of our lives, which is our lifespan. And unfortunately, we're doing a pretty bad job of that. Actually, life expectancy in the United States has gone down. It's gone down because of addiction and gun violence, overdoses and gun violence. It's also gone down because of chronic conditions. Heart disease and cancer are still our biggest killers. We're seeing the rise of dementia. What we know is that we focused on lifespan. We're not doing a great job of it. But what we need to be thinking about is health span. So do you want to be healthy, healthy, healthy for your whole life and sort of drop dead at the very end? Or do you want to be really sick for decades, years or decades at the end of your life? And so what we want to do is expand our health span. There's your chronological age, which is how long you've been alive. And then your biological age, which is a sort of indirect measure of how young you are on the inside. And we've actually had this measurement for a long time. It actually was a big deal back in the mid 2000s. I worked for Dr. Oz at the time and, and Mike Royzen, Dr. Royzen, who's a cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic. They wrote a bunch of books called like you getting old. And it wasn't you getting old. Sorry, that's my word for it. It's like you staying young. <laughs> it's called you getting old. It's you staying young. And regardless of what you think about any of these folks today, those, those books were really good. And they actually had this whole thing about measurement of biological age versus chronological age then. And this is like almost 20 years ago. And now it's become this big topic again. So I feel like everything old is new again, which is fun. But Your biological age, you can look at certain measures of blood sugar and cardiovascular health and say, how old are you in terms of biological age? Now, biological age is not a validated way of predicting how long you'll live because there's other factors, but it is a sense of how long could your health span be? Like, how long are you going to stay healthy? 
When we look at longevity, we look at the blue zones. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the blue zones, there is a cool show on Netflix. There's a whole book about them. But they looked at about five or so areas of the world where people live to 100. What do they have in common? They eat a whole foods, mostly plant-based diet. They actually eat, some of these cultures do eat meat and fish. They're not exclusively vegetarian, but they eat a little bit of those things. They're not having a plate full of meat at every meal or twice a day. We eat a whole lot of meat here in this country, and we eat a lot of poor quality meat that is inflammatory to our system. So I don't necessarily advocate for a vegetarian diet for everyone, but at Parsley, we do advocate for what we call a plant-based paleo eating program, which is whole foods, whole plants, everything I described earlier, because again, food is medicine, it's the biggest bag for your buck, and that is number one in terms of driving the blue zones, high preponderance of people who live to a later age. Now, what else? They exercise. <laughs> They use nature's wonder drug. They have community. Community and relationships are actually one of the biggest determinants of your lifespan and your health span. We are living in an epidemic of loneliness. Our elderly are often alone or separated from their families and our culture. And even folks who are much younger today due to social media and people being more online as opposed to in person are suffering from loneliness. And loneliness is actually a very big predictor of your lifespan. So it's a reminder that not all of these factors are physical things like foods or exercise. And then these people also live in places where they get out in nature. We undervalue in our culture where we spend a lot of time, many of us like myself, spend a lot of time indoors. The power of nature descends powerful signaling for our health. So those are some of the things that the Blue Zones folks have in common. And then we can get into some of the cold plunge and sauna and using medications like metformin and rapamycin and others off-label uses of drugs for longevity. But I would just remind everyone, if you're eating a highly refined sugar, highly processed diet, you're sitting all day, you're alone looking at your phone and you never go outside, not all the metformin or rapamycin or cold plunges or saunas are going to help you. Those things can be additive potentially. There's really interesting research on stem cell therapy. We could talk about some of these advanced therapeutics. But those things will only work if you've addressed the underlying foundation. I am so glad you said that, Robin, because I'm really into the biohacks and like I love all the stuff and all the the things we can do to go a little extra. Like I'm all into it. But I know for the majority of people, especially our, our listeners, they feel like I am busy. I'm just trying to get through my day. I got a lot on my plate. I just want to be healthy and it feels overwhelming. And I always feel like it's just, it's the basics. It is using food as medicine. It is moving your body and it is having community, feeling happiness, working on stress levels. Like those are the things that really give you the biggest bang for your buck. And and sometimes the things like the sauna and the crazy supplements and treatments almost like distract us from that main basis. And some of those things are expensive. They're not accessible to a lot of people where they are. Like if you live in New York and L.A., you can walk into a shop and get six IVs, an ultrasound and be in a cryo chamber and freezer. Took us off for five minutes until you can't stand it anymore. Right. You can do that really accessibly, although it costs money. But that's just not accessible to the average person. On the flip side, you know what? I'm all for biohacking. And what I see a lot even lately is that sometimes people do come into health that way. Like they want to try a ketogenic diet because they've read about it and they see the results that they can have from that in terms of weight loss and clarity and energy. They want to go try an IV. They want to try cryo and cold plunges. In some cities, I'm seeing these bathhouses, which are, by the way, are really cool. They're traditional really from Europe, Eastern Europe and Asia. There's a culture of onsen or bathhouses or Turkish hammams where people go to sweat and steam and all of those things. And there is evidence behind those things are really cool. But if that's your way in to a healthier life, you know what? Awesome. Because what I found is that health snowballs. Whatever you try first, maybe it's eating a healthier diet, maybe it's moving more, maybe it's putting yourself in a cryo chamber, whatever it is, start somewhere. And that might be sort of how you start to get interested, how you start to feel a little bit better. Whatever your way in is, barring if you have certain conditions and you want to check with your doctor first, I'm all for it because I just think that once you get excited about health in one level, what I see is it tends to then spread to the rest of your life. That's so true because I feel like it's also an identity thing where a lot of people are like, oh, I don't care about health and wellness. Like I see this a lot as 
the wellness editor, I'm like the wellness girl, but I'm like, wellness is something that we all have. It, it applies to every single one of us and we all are the experts of our own bodies. And so I think that there's also this identity of, I'm not someone who's knowledgeable about health, but we each need health. It's kind of like finances where a lot of people are like, well, I don't know finances, but we all have it. We all should be knowledgeable about our own finances. I think a lot of times it is that mindset of I'm not a healthy person when in reality health is a resource and a currency that we all have and need to focus on. I love that. I absolutely love that. Health is currency, right? Health is wealth. Health, health is wealth. wealth. You said it right. Like, we can't escape our health. We can't escape money. They're just facts of life. So don't get interested in them and use them to our advantage and not have them get in our way where that's possible. And that, and that isn't always, but where we can, I think that we can have a lot of empowerment and influence around these things. The last topic that I know our audience would be remiss if I did not ask you about is the immune system, since it is getting into cold and flu season. And as we were discussing, you and I both have a cold going on right now and a little bit of a cough. So I would love to know your tips when you're going into this season or you're just going into maybe like this is your time where you know you need to support your immune system more. What are those things that you go to? I love specifics. So it can be supplements, foods, rituals, whatever it is that you recommend people to support their immune system. Yes. Number one, my sort of basic supplement regimen for supporting immunity, I take 5,000 international units of vitamin D3 slash K2 every day. So get your vitamin D up because the vast majority of Americans are vitamin D deficient and vitamin D is really critical to having a strong immune system. Number two is sleep. We're heading into the time of the year where I always feel like the fall is kind of extra hectic. You get into holiday season, you get up your sleep and getting that eight hours and going to bed by 10 p.m. So you avoid your late evening cortisol spike, which can lead to a disruptive sleep is really important. And that brings me to alcohol. Alcohol is normalized in our society as, as something that we use to enjoy our lives. We use it to feel less stressed, to enjoy a meal. And none of those things in principle are wrong. But the thing is that for most people, Alcohol is a sleep disruptor. It messes with our blood sugar and drives anxiety. It creates GI distress. It increases cancer risk and it depletes our immunity. So I always recommend the three, four rule when it comes to alcohol. If you are someone who's drinking, and by the way, this isn't me advocating drinking alcohol. I want to be clear about that. I think all of the research shows effectively Somewhere between very little to no alcohol is best from a health standpoint, a longevity standpoint. And there are some exceptions to that. And the reality is people aren't the same. So different populations are different. But regardless, little to none. But if you are drinking alcohol, which I find is the reality for many of my patients, and so I just acknowledge that fact, try to keep it to no more than three days a week so that you have more days of your life without alcohol than you have with. Because that can actually be really compromising to all of your body systems and therefore your immunity. That's a really good tip. I'm curious, since you brought it up, because it is such a huge part of people's life, and I think it's becoming a bigger conversation whether or not alcohol deserves a spot in each of our lives. People are becoming more and more sober curious, which I think is cool. But for people who love their alcohol, it's such a huge part of their life. Are there other tips you have for indulging healthier? Like, is there certain types of alcohol that you recommend to patients over others? Again, not recommending alcohol, but if you are going to drink, the types of alcohol that I do think are, listen, alcohol is alcohol is alcohol in terms of the alcohol itself, the ethanol itself, which is broken down in your body that creates the negative health effects and cancer risk and so forth. So the alcohol itself isn't different in any of these forms. It's more what is surrounding the alcohol that could be a little bit better or worse. When it comes to alcohol, the types of alcohol that I typically choose to drink are either mezcal or, or vodka, which are clear alcohols. They don't have something called cogeners in them, which are some of the, the darker colored alcohols, which are another form of toxicity in addition to the alcohol itself. And then if I drink wine, I really have sought out and enjoy natural wine, which is a big category of wine that tends to be made without pesticides and so forth. We have to remember that grapes are really thin-skinned. And at the big winemakers around the world, they're spraying them with pesticides constantly. So wine's a pretty dirty crop. So natural wine is organic, so you're not getting all those pesticides. And then it's also fully fermented um, or close to fully fermented, which means that um, there's less resi residual sugar in it. 
to lower sugar. And then on top of that, natural wine tends to be lower in alcohol content on average, not always, but most of the time than conventional wine. And so for those three reasons, if I am going to have wine, I look for natural. I love those tips because I think that obviously a lot of health experts will say alcohol shouldn't be a part of your healthy life, in which I totally understand. But I think then for a lot of people, they turn off their brain to that advice. Like, well, can't follow that. So I like here's right. just healthier ways to in- indulge and like shift the routine rather than completely transforming it, I think is more feasible. Absolutely. And the reality is we've all been socialized to have alcohol be our stress management. And I think that to me is like the really big problem. Maybe we're using alcohol occasionally because we want to feel even better. But if we're using it to feel better, that's not our tool to feel better. It's going to feel worse. So how can we have less toxic and more constructive ways of feeling better? Exercise, meditation, community, being in nature, cooking beautiful meals, giving back. I think we forget that there's other ways to feel good other than a drink or a pill. And listen, I'm for all of the tools in our tool basket. Pills can be wildly helpful too, meaning prescription medication, but we got to use all the tools in our tool basket. And how do we kind of expand the tools to reduce anxiety, depression, have more energy? Because in the world we're living in and everything that people are dealing with, we need all the tools we got. Dr. Robin, we are going to wrap up with some rapid fire questions. First question for you, your go-to breakfast. I am an intermittent faster. So my go-to breakfast is a double espresso and then I eat around 11 a.m. But if I do eat breakfast, I like scrambled eggs, smoked salmon, avocado. I try to keep my breakfast full of healthy fats and protein and free of carbs. Yum. Okay, quick side tangent for you because I know there's such a huge debate in intermittent fasting for women. What are your thoughts? Do you feel like you have to shift it based on your cycle or do you feel like every day women can benefit from intermittent fasting? I think the risks are overblown. Listen, if you're someone who finds intermittent fasting impacts your cycle, then by all means shift it. I don't intermittent fast every single day, but some people are impacted by it a lot or not. And we have to remember that an intermittent fast is just not eating between, say, 8 p.m. and noon the next day. We're not talking about starving ourselves here. It's a few hours off in the morning. We tend to sort of constantly have our bodies in a deluge of calories in this country. That's often our habit. So that little break I don't find is hormone disruptive for most. Now, again, if you feel it's hormone disruptive for you or you've learned that or you have certain conditions where it would be, then maybe it's not for you. And again, I don't intermittent fast every day. Next question, the best piece of advice you've ever received. Don't let perfect be the enemy of really good. Ooh, that's a good one. I love that. Okay, last question for you, Dr. Robin. A book that changed your life, obviously, besides your own that changed mine, what's one that changed yours? I I feel like I have to go back to A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. He's a really world-renowned expert in meditation and presence and I think it's just such a beautiful way to see reality. So I highly recommend it to everyone. Such a great one. Such a classic. Where can everybody find you? Go to Parsley Health. And where can they get your book? My book is available on Amazon and everywhere else that books are sold in all the forms. And ParsleyHealth.com. We see patients nationwide. Most of our patients work with us online. And we also have in person in New York and Los Angeles. But Most people are working with us online. And so my message to everyone is that if you're looking for a doctor who listens, if you're looking for someone to go beyond the standard tests, if you're looking for nutrition and mental health to be part of your your healthcare, if you're looking to feel better, we are the doctor for you. And we are working with folks across the country. You don't have to be in person to work with us. We will prescribe drugs to your local pharmacy. We will order tests to your local lab. We will help you find local medical resources where those are necessary because sometimes they are. But to get our kind of impact and POV on your health and support from our doctors and coaches and RNs and so forth, sign on up. Yes. And I, as a Parsley Health member, I have to say thank you for all that you do to transform our healthcare. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know I sure did. 
If this episode gave you any value or you're liking the show in general, please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a huge difference for our show so we can keep growing and bringing the content that you love. If you want more info, you can find us at The Every Girl Podcast on Instagram or theeverygirlpodcast.com. Talk to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.